You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Today's show is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, and you can try it for free by visiting ZipRecruiter.com slash break it down. What's up, Downers? Welcome to the show. Glad to be back in studio. I've been out on the road for a couple of weeks, and I'm thrilled to be home. When I was out there, I was just reading articles and thinking and talking the whole time, and something that I have been thinking about and talking about a lot is just the whole way that people are are interacting and being polarized and extreme stuff and free speech and who's who's doing what and all the you know it just seems like everybody is really on a increasing and doubling down on their positions and what's right and what not to tolerate and I found an article by a guy named James Lindsay just randomly I'm not sure how I bumped into it and he was thinking calm and clear and smooth and his style was just tremendous I thought it, it just sounded like if I could think and write better is what I would wish I could think of and say and how I would address things and then uh, you know did a little more digging on him and turned and he wrote a bunch of other articles I like and he has a his background is not in social science and stuff like that it's actually in hard science he's a got a PhD in mathematics and he does undergrad in physics and stuff like that I just find him to be quite reasonable so I wanted to just see if I could talk to him and go through some of his articles and the stuff he'd been thinking about. Uh, you guys know I was going to have Jordan Peterson on a while back, and that canceled. And we talked about Jordan Peterson himself and what's good or bad or dangerous about that. And then we spent a good amount of time talking about the things that Jordan Peterson rails against, which are social justice warriors or neo-Marxists or the, you know the academy falling apart or whatever, whatever that other side is too. So I've just found it really nice to to get to talk to somebody who thinks kind of clearly and independently, and you know basically the word is rationally uh, for things. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation very much. So if you want to look James up, you can follow him on Twitter, James Lindsay. His handle is God Doesn't. Um, he has actually has a book called Everybody is Wrong About God also that you could check out. And he writes for a magazine called, it looks like it's called Magazine.com. I think in the interview I called it Arrow Magazine, which just shows you that I cannot read and then I mix up letters often. But I still don't not sure how you pronounce it, but A-R-E-O magazine.com. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation very much as I did. Uh, talk to y'all soon. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down. Break it down, oh, break it down. Well, let's uh, let's do some talking. You know, I noticed that you've got on, on your profile that you identify yourself as a thinker, and I wish I was a thinker. I do some thinking, but I'm probably just more of a talker, unfortunately. And that's how I try to navigate things. I really, really enjoy thinking, but it just helps me to talk about stuff, and it's just way, way more fun. You say you're not a philosopher, but a thinker. But tell me what that means, even. Like, how? What does it mean to even be a thinker? Like, how do you think about what it is that you do? Well, I mean, that's a that's a fun thing to get into, I guess. But really, it's just me stabbing at philosophers who frustrate me. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I do have a, a couple of papers that have either been published or accepted in philosophy journals. So I guess technically I sort of am a philosopher, 
my training was in science and in mathematics. Uh, I don't particularly like what flies in analytic philosophy. I think it kind of bogs things down, and I've had lots of run-ins with philosophers. So really, I'm, the bio on Twitter is mostly just kind of to stick them between the ribs. It's not mm-hmm. anything too serious. But I do think pretty deeply. And if we wanted to try to get into the thinker, not a philosopher kind of thing, I'll probably get railroaded for this. But my feeling, actually, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is that one of the ways to make good insight for me has pretty routinely been to look at things that are going on, look at problems that are going on, think about them as hard as I can, try to come to some preliminary conclusions first, and then go visit the literature and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, use that to refine thoughts that I've already formed on my own. So that way I don't fall into the same traps or patterns of thinking about problems. And this is probably a sloppy academic habit, but I think it's an interesting intellectual habit. So that would be a clear way that I distinguish myself from from the philosophical tradition. I think first and then go after the research later. Mm-hmm. And that way you come to it with a fresher approach, at least, you know, instead of getting in a rut or guided by something somebody else has said. It gives you the opportunity yeah. to possibly have new insight without going down a lane too far. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way that I like to approach problems. I want to try to get get a grasp on them on my own terms as much as I can. Of course, I have to look into stuff. I have to see what people are saying to some degree. But I try to not so much be completely ignorant, but kind of keep a keep a freshness about the way I approach problems so that I can think through them on my own terms and then come to understand what people have said about them to deepen my understanding that I'm already developing rather than to kind of send me on the path myself. And so you have a physics and math background, all science degree, stuff like that, right? Right. Yeah. My bachelor's degree is in physics and I have a master's and PhD in math. So how does that, why work on these types of problems? And I will have already given an intro for who you are and what we're going to talk about. So I know it's not covered. Well, your articles and what we're, we'll get into in a minute, but this is important to me. How do you go from having, you know, why aren't you dealing with problems in physics? You spend a lot of time to think about a problem, reason, then research it, and then write it into these articles, which I find very helpful and we'll discuss in a minute. But why work on those problems instead of math and physics where you're training? Well, is? physics, I loved up until I took electricity and magnetism and I decided that, you know, this is a very fascinating subject and it's not for me. So that would have been, you know, 2001-ish. I kind of decided that studying physics on a really rigorous level is not exactly what I'd like to be doing with my life. So I'm not really equipped to dig deeply into physics to do real work in physics. For math, I am, but life shook me up in a variety of ways. Not anything terribly negative, just, you know, circumstances led to breaking with the university in 2010. And in wanting to stay intellectually entertained, I started dipping into philosophy and started looking into questions about religion, questions about political philosophy and things like that, and trying to understand what's going on. And it's just kind of snowballed from there. Mm -hmm. So math requires, in a sense, a little bit more institutional resource to do on a research level than I have access to, at least for me. I'm, I'm not necessarily the greatest mathematician. I don't have some kind of like Ramanujan, you know, prodigy skill in it. So it works better for me if I uh, try to stay out of that unless I can get back into a university mm-hmm. situation. Yeah, well, I don't think there's anything better from my view than pursuing something or thinking about something or working on something that you're just purely 
stimulated by or fascinated with. I think that's what I wish everybody in the world could get to. I believe that'd solve almost every problem if everybody could work on what they're most stimulated to do. And that seems like maybe what you've done. And so now you're, you write articles and essays and things like that. And that's, is that your, I don't know, I don't know that much about you. I just got into you recently and followed you on Twitter and I just love to be honest, the last three articles you published, I just think are terrific. I want to discuss them, but are you a professional writer? What's your employment and all that? Yeah, I guess that's a good description at this point. I think it's finally working out as a profession. I make probably enough money doing it to call it that. I also am a professional researcher. I have a research appointment that I I work with as well. So um, researching and writing and and digging into topics and trying to find things out are pretty much what I do with most of my time now. Yeah. That's excellent. That's really just, uh, it's cool to hear. And that cool that I have access to somebody like that where I can read their articles, think it's interesting. And now let's discuss them. How about that? Yeah, it sounds great. Um, so the ones I'm talking about, and I don't know if these are actually the most recent one, but the one about uh, Thomas Rawls' original original position, original position, that one's yeah. really interesting. The Jordan Peterson article, and then um, the I think another one that you had is about being a liberal and spending your time criticizing the left. Correct. Those are my three most recent. Those are three most recent. Okay, good. Well, I like all three of those very much, and well, you'll uh, keep because we're about to put out. Me and Helen are about to put one out again, Helen Pluckrose, here probably in a few days about why we should stand up for the university and why the university is under attack. Interesting. So keep that open for that. Yes, I will. I'll be excited to read that one. So I can't figure out if there's any particular... I don't know if we'll get to all three. And if so... It's important what order we choose to discuss them. Let's just start with Jordan Peterson then. I had, right. I, I had, I had, him, yeah, yeah, right. I had him scheduled for a couple of interviews a few weeks ago when he was doing all the podcasts. And on the one, the days that we had him, he had internet problems in his hotel and, you know, missed the boat on that. So I may get him back at some point. But I've been, I've been thinking about him and listening to him for a, a good amount of time, both out of personal interest and to prepare for that interview that did not happen. So, you and I can at least talk about it then for sure. So you're responding to Douglas Murray's article about Peterson. And Mm -hmm. um, golly, it's just interesting to me that we live in such a time where there's so much meta-analysis of what people are saying about what people are saying. And it's it's really Uh fun. What I get from the article basically on that, here's is called the Guru Appeal of Jordan Peterson. And let's see, I'll read how you close it because it's kind of a, uh, let's see if I have that here. I may not have it right here. Yeah, I do. Your uh, conclusion there is basically that Jordan Peterson winds up being a guru for men and their sympathizers who don't know how or what to be in today's post-everything world. So you've kind of got him, uh, you got the whole thing pegged as a religious movement, but you're not extremely critical of him because he seems to be doing most of what he's doing perhaps in good faith, and it's just turning out the way it's turning out, and it remains to be seen if he has any other intentions or whatever, but nonetheless, people are attracted to this in what you would call a very religious way. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I don't think, I mean, to be honest, I don't think that that Peterson has any bad faith motivations, as far as I can tell from what I've seen of him. The guy is perfectly genuine. He could be putting us on, but I really don't think he is. Mm -hmm. I think he really believes what he's saying. I think he's really behind it. I think he's really into it. I think a lot of it is really valuable and really good, especially where he's making some commentary about the academic in particular, the academic and social left. I think he's doing a really good job exposing what's going on. 
I do also think that he's doing a fairly excellent job at a bigger project, which is to try to put out, and he has a book called Maps of Meaning. So he's trying to put out a map of meaning for people to latch onto. And I can understand where he's coming from. Seems like if you look around, there's kind of this feeling that young men, especially, but men in general are sort of adrift in the, in the, Literature you'll see in gender studies, they, they call this the late modern epoch, and they talk about how there have been many challenges to masculinity, and men are searching for new kinds of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So I think he's tapping into something, and of course, a lot of that's being informed by feminist thought in this, this period. I think he's really tapping into a, a need, because I don't think that the gender scholars are speaking to people, and in fact, I think they're speaking in a way that, that alienates a lot of people, especially young men. and as I called it in my article, they're sympathizers. I didn't mean that, by the way, in like the Nazi sympathizer kind of way. Mm-hmm. I meant that in terms of people who are what is called in the sociological liter- literature, sympathetic partisans, people who are on board with your plight, people who understand where they're coming from. It's a, you know, an ideologically neutral term. But I think that he's speaking to them. And when you speak to somebody and he's speaking to grievances, he's speaking to frustration, he's speaking to resentment. And I think that needs to be spoken to. And I think he's doing a decent job with a lot of it. But it also requires a tremendous amount of care because as his following is starting to show, it feels like a religious movement. My background for the past five, I guess, years has primarily been in studying religious psychology. Like I said, I got interested in the whole religion, atheism kind of philosophical thing coming out of 2010. By 2013, I just became completely obsessed with, well, instead of arguing all this does God exist? Does God not exist? I've been obsessed with what What does the, the word God mean? What are these people that are religious rallying around? What psychologically and sociologically is happening here? And so as I'm watching the thing with Peterson unfold, it's pretty clear to me what's going on is that he's, for these people, meeting certain needs that then formulate around what I call a, called a quasi-religious kind of movement. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? I think Peterson's slightly aware of it, at least. He, he speaks the right way about it. So I think that's one thing is that you need to be really cautious when you're motivating people at that level. Because why? What are the dangers here of, of that going on that way? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's really easy to start leading people down the wrong path when you have that kind of devotion and can offer that kind of sway. So, I mean, I don't know for sure. I have concerns. I also like a lot of his project, so I don't know that I even think I'm a Jordan Peterson critic. Is is he? I don't even think that's the right way to qualify me. I'm just a little hesitant with what I'm seeing, while I while I like a lot of the rest of what I see from mm-hmm. him. Yeah, I think it's real interesting because I mean, basically, my frame of of spending the time in there is like, God, this is right on. This, I mean, but it, it certainly is exactly aimed at and I fit the total demographic of who it who should be into it you know basically and and so to me it hits this chord of too good to be true so watch out like if it's no way it's just oh the one guy that's right about everything that can't that just cannot be the case so if I find myself feeling that uh well then it's time to try to really push back and examine you know what's going on here and how does it click on so many cylinders for me and be skeptical of that so that's kind of the frame I approach it with and that's from the point of view of damn I like what he's <laughs> always saying yeah, yeah, yeah totally that's that's why the article isn't really about Peterson I mean it talks about him quite a lot but it's really more about the movement around him I was mm-hmm. I, you know you called it a meta analysis of a meta analysis or whatever 
but I really wanted not so much to criticize Peterson as to answer the question Murray seemed to, to leave hanging. Murray wants to understand why he has so much appeal. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to answer that question because it's not the least bit confusing for me why he has so much appeal. When he speaks, like you just said, it feels like he's speaking to you, especially if you have some of these cons- same concerns he has, maybe even some of the same resentments, fears, or even if it comes to it, grudges against a social situation that feels like it's frankly squashing you. And it's, I can totally get it. And it, like I said, the, the concern for me there is are people being duly skeptical? Like you just mentioned exactly the right attitude. Yeah, Peterson's saying some stuff. Some of it's going to be really helpful. Some of it's spot on. Some of it's really important. And he's got a huge audience, a huge amount of sway. But I'm a bit concerned. You know, you you feel this skepticism about it, but not everybody does. So I wrote an article about the movement itself mm-hmm. that I hoped would encourage that same kind of skepticism. But what would be the real dangers? What if there's no healthy skepticism? People just buy it and, you know, he's saying good stuff. So what could be the problem here? <laughs> what could be the problem <laughs> if somebody's saying? that people like and they just start running with it and um, it goes a little bit too far in any direction. I mean, that's exactly what he's fighting against. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that he's fighting against is a lot of the stuff that we see coming out of the the feminist left. And he feels like it's gone too far. It's a little bit too overbearing, almost matriarchal feminist domination is sort of the way that he conceptualizes it. And he's answering that with kind of a what I can't deny feels like a pretty hefty dose of macho bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so do we really need to start encouraging macho bullshit as the answer to feminism? And I don't know that that's a great thing. There's got to be some balance in there. Certainly. I mean, I'm totally okay with the idea of, you know, men feeling like men and feeling powerful and strong and, and, and competent and the things that he talks about. And being able to root masculinity in that, I think there are probably, he's probably right, that there are biological bases to where this is appealing and that there are things for that. But it's one of those things that we've already seen that encouraging too much of it can can really be a problem. This is almost always the case when you have social movements, especially big cultural movements like the shift toward feminism. And now there's going to be a shift coming and it's starting and Peterson's kind of at the front of the wave shift back away from it. The, the tendency is to see oversteer mm-hmm. and oversteer is if you know anything about driving, how you wreck your car. Yep. So you, the goal is to try to stay, you know, fairly moderate with, with that kind of advice and to recognize the value in the other side. And I mean, I don't want to give advice to Peterson and his message. I want him to do what he does. I just want people to realize, you know, what, what you actually articulated at the beginning of this, this little interchange is that if, if it feels too good to be true, if it feels like it's hitting exactly all the right buttons, mm-hmm. you might be sold a little bit of bullshit that you wish was true. And take it with some salt, you know, hang out a little bit with that. Think about what's the other side say, not, you know, Jordan Peterson said, blah, 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 boom, spike the football in your face, <laughs> you know, flex, I'm a man or whatever. So, and I mean, let me, let me even like do a total mea culpa here. I've got a hoodie on because it's bizarrely cold today for spring, but uh, underneath this here, I have on, I don't know if you can see mm-hmm. this, that is the testosterone molecule on my t-shirt. So I can get into the whole identifying with manliness stuff and I can be alienated and pissed off that masculinity scholars literally call that hormonal folklore. 
that a man's testosterone might have anything to do with him feeling like a man. I can, I totally get pissed off about that too. It's absurd and insulting. So I get where he's coming from and I resonate with some of the message, but there's also got to be that measure because when I wear a shirt with a testosterone molecule on it, I get the kind of ironic silliness about it as well. It's a little bit absurd. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit just over the top, kind of on purpose, but I've also got a playful, fun attitude about it. And not everybody's going to see that, but if you don't have that aspect of the measurement in there, again, like you're inviting oversteer, we really don't need to roll back a lot of traditional roles. Some of them we maybe need to look to for inspiration. A lot of them we're better off without. So that's where I get concerned with watching what's coming from from Peterson. Yeah, definitely. And and there's some things in there where it's so he's so expert and rooted. Here's the thing that I noticed. He's so calculated and measured and expert in his field that he's speaking so powerfully from in an unquestionable way. And and then before you know it, he's given at the tail end of that some really strong opinions that right. that are just has nothing to do with his expertise or anything. It's just uh, it, it'll go to a story and carry the momentum from his clinical expertise. And it's just pretty seamless. And that's that seems uh, that's what I try to to, to look out for, or try to separate, which can be difficult. Right. And I know you said that your audience is a lot post-Christian. And I know that um, certainly if we're willing to talk about Peterson, we're willing to talk about post-feminism or whatever. That actually means something specific. But, you know, this kind of feminist as a ideological movement thing. And you have to look at this. So I've studied the religious psychology for years, like I said, to understand why people believe in God, why they form religions, why they get into religious movements what those look like. And one of the things that I'm nearly positive is how religious beliefs tend to be spread and be caught up is what you just described. It's actually the manufacturing and exploitation of a sense of vulnerability. So he can speak to you. It sounds like he's talking right to you, right to your problems. Hey, you know, this is what's going on. This is holding you down. This is a big problem for men, for boys, for people like you. Vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable. Here's a recipe for a solution. Here's an opinion. Here's the way out of it. My view. And the the psychological mechanism there hooks people in. You've heard it in an evangelical religion with, you know, what do you call somebody who tells a lie? Oh, a liar. Have you ever told a lie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So that's whichever number commandment, right? So mm-hmm. you do three or four of these things. You're a liar. You're a thief. You know, you're a it's an old evangelical track to try to get people to feel guilty and vulnerable. And then it comes the hook. Did you know there's a way out of that? All you have to do is repent to Jesus and, you know, accept him into your heart and he'll forgive you for those terrible sins. You see it with feminism. You see the especially contemporary feminists with the, the kind of victimhood ideology that they push showing a picture to young women coming in, especially into college campuses, one in four women is going to be sexually assaulted while in college. Well, it turns out not to be true unless you use an extremely expansive definition of sexual assault that yeah. manipulates by what looks like a factor of more than 10. Well, that, yeah, that, I mean, you, I'll let you continue on there, but that one is just violates all kind of common sense if you think about oh, yeah. it. Like, well, okay, so for sure, don't, I wouldn't ever send my daughter, right? <laughs> if right, it, that exactly. was actually true, you would never send your daughter. Right. And so, the probability that you're going to be sexually assaulted in college is super high. Blah, blah, blah. There's this wage gap, which has lots of other explanations mm-hmm. that aren't sexism. 
that's holding you down. Blah, blah, blah. Vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable. Guess what? Fight the patriarchy with us. Yeah. And you hook them in. You exploit vulnerability to bring people into an ideologically motivated moral community, whether that's religious, which is one case, whether that's something that's rooted more in politics, whether that's something that's rooted more in just social issues from a secular perspective, that's another. And there are various elements that play in that can make it more or less religious. Uh, I would say there's this kind of spectrum of religiosity in terms of what social movements work out to be. But underlying it, the conversion mechanism is always, and not always, is nearly always, that there's some degree of a vulnerability that's then exploited. And then a solution to that problem is given from authorities within the uh, ideological structure. And that's always got to be watched out for. That's really, it's an easy way to manipulate people. It's selling the dream. Uh, salespeople do it too. And that's in a non-ideological sense. It's, it, you create vulnerability mm -hmm. or expand it and then exploit it to get people on board with your project. Of course, you might say, well, a lot of people are religious from childhood, and it's not like they're exploiting vulnerability. Well, not directly necessarily, but children are sort of, in a sense, the definition of vulnerability. And they do very often, you know, the first encounter with death, they can put away, you know, their pet dies or grandma dies or somebody dies and they can, well, they didn't really die. You know, they're still in heaven. And Jesus just needed another angel. I mean, stuff like that. So the the vulnerability hook is really huge into bringing people into moral communities. And if you look at the literature, say, or things that explore how the Jehovah's Witnesses and these kind of far more cult-like religious movements do this, this is exactly what they're trying to do, just kind of in that case, in a rocky way, create fear and vulnerability, expand and exploit it, and hook people in, into the solution that you're trying to convince them of. Mm -hmm. So is Peterson doing that willfully? I don't think so. He's probably evolved his message into something that works. He's very convinced that he's onto something that does work to some degree. And I think he's right that to some degree it works. But the question is, you know, where do you get skeptical? Where do you get the measurement? And I see him showing some humility in that regard. Also, occasionally not. But then I don't see it from a lot of his followers, which mm -hmm. is what freaked me out far more. All right, pardon the interruption here, but I'm going to tell you about ZipRecruiter and hiring and the people that you work with and your team because it's essential. If you work in business at all, if you run a business or even just hire anybody to work for you, you know how important it is to have the right team. I've been very fortunate to be able to work with some really good people, and sometimes you find them because you, you know them personally or wind up doing stuff together in all kind of ways. But if you ever find yourself in a position where you don't know somebody to hire, you don't have a way into that, you're not going to get the best results by just putting out a help wanted sign or just throwing it out on some website. You got to use ZipRecruiter because there's nothing more vital than your team and who you work with and what you can accomplish together. ZipRecruiter knew there had to be a smarter way to get the right candidates. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. And I'm telling you, this is just the way it's got to be in the future is we got to get the right people that care about the right thing, doing the stuff that they're good at with the people that need them to do it. And then not only will your business run well, I think that's also a recipe for, you know, being happy and fulfilled. And we're glad ZipRecruiter is working on it. So ZipRecruiter learns what you are looking for. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And they don't 
stop there. They even spotlight the strongest ones you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. And this is for businesses of all sizes. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash break it down. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash break it down. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Yeah, that that's it's difficult because like, how is the responsibility for people that like him on him? But nonetheless, you know, they're going to be hyper versions of what you put out there, no matter what. So I, I can definitely see that. But one of the most damning things that you said in there, whether it be to him or not, that I thought was was really cool. I don't know if it's your idea or exactly, but it's the notion that if the thing that the person is saying is not clearly enough stated as its own idea to be extracted and utilized and to make predictions with, if the thinker or the speaker keeps you dependent on his interpretation of stuff to keep coming back, then he's not saying anything clearly enough and it keeps you dependent on him to go back and what's he going to say next about the book of Exodus then, I guess, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, the the guru mechanism, Mm -hmm. which actually term I got I don't know if I got the term. I don't think I called got the term specifically, but there's a feminist named Martha Nussbaum who wrote a scathing critique, I think around 99 or 2000 of another very famous feminist named Judith Butler. And she essentially accused Judith Butler of being a guru for, for feminists. And I think that that was a pretty accurate, it's one of the best things in print. It really should be required reading in gender studies departments, but it's not for, I think, fairly obvious reasons. But anyway, Nussbaum criticized Judith Butler that way and wrote this whole nice paper articulating how she does it and how she she uses this kind of impenetrable prose that that leaves you without the energy to really analyze what she's saying Mm -hmm. and asks a lot of open-ended questions and things to make her points and, in a sense, makes her audience reliant upon her in order to understand how to interpret the next thing. Obviously, Peterson's much more clear than that in his exposition. He's much, much more direct. I feel with Peterson that his comes out of, like you mentioned, the biblical exegesis and the interpretation of what it was. It's a novel biblical exegesis, I should add, that's filtered through Jungian archetypes, which he is, you know, putting his own spin on. So the question that you might ask if you were a big fan of Peterson is, could I sit back personally and consider the union archetypes or the exegesis of Genesis and come up with the same kind of thing that he's using to explain this? And if the answer to that is no, and that you feel like you're probably going to have to rely on him to make sense of the next thing, then he's got a little bit of that guru mechanism going on. If the answer to that would be a clear and straightforward yes, and the, you know it's not going to be everybody necessarily because it's not purely scientific. In fact, Jungian archetypes are unfalsifiable, which means they're objectively not scientific. Exegesis is also not falsifiable, so it's not scientific. But if you could get a you know pretty convincing argument that most of the people are on board or coming up with the same kind of stuff, and that stuff accords with the other things you're showing, say, in the sciences or, or um, interpretation of the sciences, then maybe you don't need the guru quite as much. But if the answer seems to be that you need to hedge toward what he's going to say next, you know, some terrible event happens or some interesting event happens um, in the news and people turn to Peterson to see what it means, maybe, you know, whatever it happens to be, just pulling a non-example out of the sky, 
if they feel like they have to see what he's going to say in order to formulate their own opinions, then they've fallen into the guru mechanism. Mm-hmm. They're relying on him in the guru sense. If they don't, then they're not. And generally, we should be skeptical of that. We should worry so that we don't get led down the path. And also, in the sense, just like I talked about at length in the article from Peterson himself, we don't help him lead himself back down the path of going further off into, into weird stuff. So, for instance, if if with Judith Butler, if people would have just called her out from the beginning. I mean, like this, you know politics of parody and gender performance is, is bullshit. Cut it out. And she just would have run into that wall over and over again. Then it's not as likely that she would have went as far with the idea as she did. But instead, she ended up with a lot of people following her and saying, oh, wow, this is so impressive. This is such a great idea. And then, you know, that gives her feedback that drags her along further down that path. And Peterson himself did a lecture um, a little over a year ago. It's on YouTube. It's cited in the article and with a link. And he talks about how he feels like even five or six people who are really crowding around you, telling you your ideas are great, are likely to drive you off in some crazy direction. And we're all subject to that. So we all want to be on guard for that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's what I think might be kind of a guru mechanism that goes on again. And it's not, is Peterson necessarily doing this on purpose? I don't think so. Is he acting in bad faith? I would almost say definitely not. But is this dynamic occurring with probably a significant portion of people who really like him, I would think that it seems to be the case. And so what's the, what's the solution? Well, I don't, again, I don't really want to give advice to Peterson, but to his audience, you know, it's really, really realize what you're working with when you're looking at mythopoetic structures like union archetypes or biblical exegesis or exegesis of any text, as a matter of fact. And with Peterson, it's even almost, with also Peterson with Disney films, he has a whole thing with Disney films with this. Um, you know, with with Peterson, it's almost like you know, hedge. Maybe it's smart not to give him advice, but maybe it's smart. I would be much more cautious, I think, than he is about relying upon that if it were me. But you know, what he's doing is his thing. Good for him. Yeah, it's just clearly what you're describing there is is religious. It's the thing that happens with religious stuff and other movements that are, I suppose, quasi-religious, like social justice or feminism type things. I've I've just been really paying attention to it a lot lately and come from the overtly religious Calvinistic kind of thing. Anyway, that's what, what I've come from or out of, and um, I recognize it. It's no different than any preacher or pastor. You just... You know, everybody wants to farm out the work to the one person and trust them. It's just built in. It's, it's you could say it's laziness, but it's uh, it's it's deeper than than laziness. But you really want there to be an answer, and you really want to believe that somebody knows it, and that you yeah. can go back to the same person for another answer because they were right this time, and who else would be next time? I mean, you know, you're more likely to think that, and 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 you say, well, it's not that bad for Peterson. He's not doing all the things he's saying is good. But it's very easy to see when you flip over into some other Facebook group that's very activist-driven, and you see that the, who their leaders are and how they just set the tone, and everybody does exactly what they think they're supposed to do, and that look to them for the answers. You, and if it's if it's a cause or, or something that you don't like as much, it starts to look really scary really fast. Yeah, exactly. And from the perspective of people who think what Peterson's doing is terribly regressive or retrograde, which some of them are lunatics. I'm not hesitant to say that. <laughs> Some of them may have more legitimate criticisms. They see this the same way that what you're describing is other groups 
that freak, say, you out or would freak Peterson out. And what we ultimately want to do is we want to try to stick within the tradition of liberalism where anybody can put forward ideas, anybody can criticize those ideas. Nobody gets to have final say. Nobody has special authority. Any idea that gets put out is, is welcome to be criticized. And when that starts breaking down, that's where you really got to start to worry. Um, Peterson, as far as I can tell, is still quite open to criticism. Um, his followers are not open to criticism of him, which is a worrying trend, which is why I felt like I needed to say anything anyway. But that's ultimately what it comes down to. As long as people are willing to have the dialogue, as long as they're willing to recognize their fallibility, and as long as they're willing to accept you know, valid criticism or attempted valid criticism, attempted criticism at all of their points of view, then they're on the path. They're, they're playing ball, and that's part of the process, and good for them. And I think Peterson is pretty firmly in that tradition. He's pretty firmly, properly a, a liberal in the, I hate to use the word classical sense because that's been used up now. And mm-hmm. I just saw in the Twitter earlier, apparently that is secret code word for alt-right. Yeah, the classical liberal lunatics. now means alt-right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they're lunatics. People who say things like that are deeply partisan lunatics. They have absorbed existential dread they literally are afraid that society is going to fall apart if people have opinions other than their own. And this has created the polarization we see now is what I call existential polarization. Each side feels as though the other side is going to ruin society if they get power. And I think we're having a pretty extreme rebuttal against that. I don't know what's going to happen with the White House right now, with Trump being in the White House, but uh, it's certainly not yet a sky is falling situation that many people predicted. So even giving given the alt-right power, in a sense, because Trump's kind of the avatar of that, wasn't sufficient to cause the sky to fall. So I think the, the key to see there is if, if anybody can get that perspective, is to, we really do need to simmer down some and we need to focus on principles that build effective societies, not whether or not you're giving a voice to the wrong side or giving them a platform to speak, and therefore that must be stopped. As it turns out, letting people talk, letting people even have some degree of power almost never turns into the end of the world, as long as you adhere to certain core principles. These would be like liberal democracy, some kind of regulated capitalist economic system, some kind of liberal knowledge production scheme like science or science construed broadly where dialogue and dialectic are at the center of it. That's really the, what matters. Yeah, I could I could not agree more. So let's move through the Peterson stuff to who he criticizes, which would he would call. And this is a, a question that I would have liked to try to pin him down to answer. But uh, when you're talking about the neo-Marxists or the postmoderns or the moral relativists, I'm not exactly sure that I know who these people are or if the people that he's projecting or that a lot of people are projecting, if they really exist or as nefarious or as outspoken or if they're claiming those things, that the category that he's putting them in. Certainly there are people that would claim to be neo-Marxist or moral relativist, but not so many. I, I feel like they're, I don't know who those people are. I don't run into them a lot. And I'm wondering, is he over, or is a lot of people over-characterizing those groups? Are there really people out there that just completely are neo-Marxist and trying to push this through? Or is it just people that have different ideas and are, you know, being a little silly? Well, I don't know exactly. I looked up the word neo-Marxist. I know that Peterson uses that phrase a lot. I looked that up. 
And it seems to be a term that was made up to fit right. this exact circumstance, which is that you have people in the postmodern tradition that have adopted essentially critical theory and they apply the notion that the oppressed should be given special status or special authority within society, which does derive some of its intellectual understanding from Marx, but it derives a lot more of it from Hegel and Heidegger, who also inspired Marx. So it's more like two roads running in parallel. I don't particularly love the term neo-Marxist for this, but nonetheless, these people do exist. And I don't know how significant they are, but when- Are they self-described though? I mean, is it like the alt-right where you just lump people, you know, is it- Um, So they certainly don't call themselves neo-Marxists. Right. And the term postmodernist is actually dying. They would refer to themselves as critical theorists, I believe, however. They would consider themselves critical gender theorists or critical gender scholars or critical race scholars or um, other aspects of critical scholarship like post-colonial scholars. Or you pick the kind of like specialty group, fill-in-the-blank studies scholars. Hawaiian studies is an example I happen to know a little bit about. So you you pick these these various specialty groups and really look at the scholarship in what's ultimately a critical theory way, which is, like I said, rooted in this same so-called Hegelian master-slave dialectic. It's A lot of it's rooted in what's known now as intersectional thought, which is sort of like parsing out who deserves to be considered more or less privileged and therefore considered in different ways under these kinds of, of, of umbrellas. These people are... I think relatively common within certain departments, maybe seven to 10 departments within the university. They are doing a very effective job of creating diversity boards and inclusion committees and things like that. You saw, for instance, James Damore from Google, probably you noticed that he got fired for challenging diversity and inclusion. Um, and then the popular take out of the media on him is that he's some kind of tech bro. I met the guy <laughs> a few weeks ago. He's, I mean, he's a wonderful human being, and he's the least bro person I think that I've met in my life. He's a very sweet, very thoughtful young man. I would—I don't know how on earth tech bro fits him. <laughs> I love the bro being a pejorative. It's so funny. I mean, I played yeah. in a—I played in a punk screamo band for 15 years wear skinny jeans have tattoos whatever and if i'm podcasting and say something that that people don't like they'll start calling me a bro (laughs) and it's like it's just the funniest thing for this people like me and my friends and then you get labeled uh, they call me a progressive or something like that (laughs) stuff like that it's hilarious yeah it's like this stuff's getting a lot of cultural weight behind it as far as how many people are there that are like this I don't know, like in comparison to people that actually would consider themselves alt-right or that would get labeled appropriately alt-right, how many of them there are. But the out-and-out people are significant within certain departments of the university, and they have very strongly affected pedagogy, which is how things are taught. And they've instituted diversity boards, usually through things like the Title IX uh, provision civil rights law. And that's now filtering out into the corporate world and into the media world as well. And so it is getting fairly broadly internalized by society. It's extremely potent within the university systems, which is scary because they're engines of education and actually engines of culture also. But 
the thing is, is you actually don't need that many people who are dyed in the wool lunatics to make massive amounts of social waves. I don't recall who did the study, but I recently saw a study that said it can be as small as something like eight to 10% of the population representing a certain view is enough to start seriously influencing policy. So you don't have to have, you know, it doesn't have to be 60% of the population has gone mad. Therefore, you know, we're, we're doomed. If it gets to 60%, I mean, that's way, way beyond. By the time you're getting up between five and 8%, you're already seeing significant disruption. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the real concern is, isn't even so much how many of these people are kind of like dyed in the wool, full on so-called postmodern neo-Marxist, whatever the term that people want to use. How many of them are critical theorists? Just say what they are. How many of them are really that? Uh, it's how many of their ideas are seeping out into society and right. becoming normalized. Right. And their ideas have become broadly normalized and people feel like that's the normal way to discuss or think about issues. When critical race theory becomes the primary way in which we have to analyze all issues regarding to race, then they are an extremely significant force. Mm-hmm. When I am running into, you know, and I don't run in the most intellectual or academic circles or anything like that, but I have, you know, my friends are smart, you know, educated, interesting people and to some degree, but I don't feel like they know. I feel like I see a lot of people being influenced by these ideas that have no clue where the ideas come from. And so when you say this only takes a few people that are well-organized, I still am trying to get to the bottom of, are they well-organized cabal that know they're weaponizing or winning other people or having other people do their dirty work and on social media? Is it a plan or is it just people's ideas? And it's just, you know, that's how ideas work. People like the ideas. And even if they don't know where they come from and they propagate, that's okay too, right? Right. So yes and no. I mean, I have to admit that according to the the fairly ex- extensive amount of research I've done now into the history and and scholarship of gender studies, I don't I don't know if you know about the conceptual penis as a social construct yeah, yeah. I did last time, but I got kind of put to it. You don't know anything about gender studies. I was kind of proud of that fact at the time, but I've decided I should probably learn something about it. So I picked up a little and um, looked at the history. It has been a little bit of a deliberate plan to remake society. This is the agenda of the feminist project roughly falling out of the late 1960s. The end of second wave liberal feminism and the rise of third wave intersectional feminism has been an explicit attempt to remake society, to remake the academy and to remake society around it. So there is, is it a cabal? No, not exactly. You have a I mean, just like your pastors at church are not a cabal, they are a bunch of people who really strongly believe something, and they all kind of draw back on similar sources. And you wouldn't call the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, for example, a cabal, Mm -hmm. but they are certainly an organization that kind of channels thought, and these these academic departments do that. Let me give you an example, though, of this filtering out in society. That's a helpful analogy. Thank you for that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's that's what's going on. The the you have these people that are researching it at the school. They're like theologians. They're like the William Lane Craig's of of the feminist world, and they study this stuff. Alvin Plantinga of the religious or of the feminist world. They study this stuff. They put out scholarship. Then you have activists who some of them are more like priests and bishops. They're kind of highly respected, well known. They dip into the scholarship themselves, and a lot of them they translate it into activist stuff. Then you have activists who are like the pastors, and they're your diversity officers. They're your people who are putting on the sensitivity training and all that. These are your pastors. 
And there, there is an explicit goal through feminist teaching or educational scholarship, for example, to train people to do this and explicitly to do so to spread feminism into the institution and into other fields. So, yes, it is in some ways intentional, not as in a cabal, but in the same sense that any religious movement would want to Evangelism spread itself. itself. I mean, that's all. That's it, what it is for, it, for the good cause. And so we want to get more people into it or at least behaving like we behave, even if they don't ever care what critical theory is because they don't. Right. But these ideas, like you indicated, don't come out of the sky. They don't come out of nowhere. They are coming from these so-called you know, feminist theologians, but they're not theologians. They're scholars or critical critical theory scholars. So here's a great example. I got an email today from a young woman who had a pretty difficult past and came across somebody who was complaining about who also had a pretty difficult past. The person who emailed me is a white girl. There's lots of childhood abuse or something like this that didn't go into details. Ran into a black girl who's had some bad things happen to her, who was saying nobody can understand her problems, blah, blah, blah. And so the girl who contacted me said, well, actually, I can kind of relate, blah, blah, blah. Here's my past. And the black girl's response was rage and anger and said, <laughs> that's just the white girl fragility coming out. So you've probably even heard this male fragility, white fragility. You've probably heard this term, right? Mm -hmm. It's mainstreaming now. You'll see it if you on social media, people accusing you of fragility. This term traces back to a scholar, Robin DeAngelo, who published a paper about white fragility in 2011, where she got the idea, whether she derived it from conversations that we're having and pulled it up from grassroots or not, this concept got all of its serious traction following the publication of a paper about white fragility by Robin DeAngelo in 2011. So the scholarship credentials the ideas, even if the ideas are coming up slang, grassroots, whatever they are, the scholarship is credentialing them as though they are legitimate knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that carries a powerful imprimatur. And then it slowly starts leaking back out. So now if somebody wants to whine about fragility, oh, it's just your white fragility. That's why you're pushing back. That's why you said that your white fragility, you want to keep your privilege. That's what it's all about. It's about keeping your privilege. You're just fragile that you're going to lose your privilege. And so before it was just like, you could say back to this person, what are you talking about? I mean, it's nonsense. And now they're going to say, well, there are these studies that have been done showing oh, yeah. that you're perfect and you have fragility that prove white fragility. Though they don't prove that actually, it's a, they, absolutely not. But the existence of this scholarship looks that way and convinces a lot of people. And it adds a ton of weight behind these kinds of accusations. So that's oh, yeah. kind of what's going on. Yeah, that's the whole. I mean, it's really scary. I mean, it's one of the things I guess with the, you know, the ability to share information. A lot of it is not. Nobody knows maybe where that comes from, but the fact that somebody thought of it, articulated it, put it into words, and then put it out there now gives it the ability to, I guess, spread in whatever way, mimetically or whatever how things spread, well, even I, if they don't know where it came from. And it's kind of it's like not put, no, it's not like they put. It's not like Robin D'Angelo put this on a blog on Medium. She didn't put, she didn't publish this in the New York Times. She published this in journals with of, of highest scholarly standards, of, of peer-reviewed, the whole shebang that everybody out in public equates with the highest level of serious scholarship. These are people who are, are serious scholars, it seems, putting out real research showing that white people are are fragile in their privilege and throw a fit. If, you know, black people bring up affirmative action or something, this is this is not the same as if she put it out on, on your Twitter and or put it on Medium or 
wrote a blog somewhere. It's a totally different level of stuff. And so these people who do this, these actual critical theorists, deeply, deeply believe in, in these ideas, deeply want to spread these ideas. They think they are doing a legitimate scholarship mm-hmm. and be um, spreading an important activist message, making political a big political difference. And then there are lots and lots of people who can then turn to that and say, not only does this concept exist, not only is it out there, but this is scholarship. This is you know stuff coming out of the university. This is academic journals. It's like the peak of what we take seriously in society. I mean, if it's on a blog, it would be one thing, but it'd still be out there or whatever. But who takes a... The answer is it's on a blog, right? That's a blog. Who cares? But this is published in a serious academic journal. That's a whole different level mm-hmm. of thing. And so this is... I mean, this is why this stuff really matters. And this is why when I, I wrote the article that you mentioned about feminism and nobody paying enough attention because they can't, because they can't pay attention to this stuff because <laughs> it's uncareaboutable. <laughs> That's why this matters is you can't care about this enough to stop it. But this is what's causing these ideas to become so widespread and damaging and able to do what they do in society. Well, it's kind of like, a, it's, you know, you get the you get a term like fragility, and it's not only that it's backed up academically, but it's also just real useful. It just works. It just, when somebody lobs it at somebody, it just functions, and so therefore will continue to propagate. So, that, right. like, is that, that's like a slave, you know, master-slave, it's a grenade from the slave to the master to try to upend that. And you, you said Hegel or Heidegger, is that not, is that them or Nietzsche or somebody, that? The master slave, how you the slave mentality is to turn it around and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So um to draw another analogy for for the religious thing, um, you know, when when religious people are like, you know, you say, Well, how is that true? And they're like, Well, it's in the Bible. And that's just the end of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you know that white fragility is real? There's an academic paper. This academic scholarship is the equivalent of scripture. Critical theory scholarship is the equivalent of scripture for people who are buying into the critical theory stuff. Just like most people that were Christians aren't hardcore Christians. They don't know what the hell is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I was a Christian. I didn't ever fucking read the thing. Nobody does. And let's be real. Nobody reads it. But then a few people do, and they take it a little more seriously. But what happens is you, you get all these kind of mishmashed ideas, and you think, oh, well, it's in the Bible, therefore it's got to be good and true. The same thing happens with the, with the average person out on the ground who's picking up, oh, yeah, well, that's white fragility. They don't know that Robin D'Angelo said it, but they know that there's this tradition that goes back, if it was Christianity to, to the Bible, if it's feminism to critical theory scholarship or critical gender scholarship, they know that there's this tradition in some sense and that they're that they're borrowing on that. And if they go look it up, that's what they're going to appeal to and say, oh, well, there's a study. And so that's that's it's, it's literally kind of running in parallel here where this critical theory scholarship is playing the role of either scripture itself or exegesis on scripture mm-hmm. um, you see in the religious world. It's the exact same thing, two different communities using two different bodies of alleged knowledge. Yeah, that way of thinking of it is helpful to me. I'm glad to be having this conversation because I've been trying to I, – I know it can't be just this crazy boogeyman thing of the neo-Marxists. I know that sounds false, but I can understand when you think of it like – you know, a, a different religious movement that's well intentioned and you know has some goofy underpinnings, and then they're good people out trying to do good stuff, and there you go. That's how you know it's not as conspiratorial or anything like you would think, but yeah. nonetheless dangerous. Yeah, I think 
I would bet you, I mean, I can't say this for sure, but I would bet you more than 97, because the proportion is about 3% of the population, I would bet you about 97% of gender theory, critical theorists are very sincere, good people who think they're trying to save the world. They're trying to do good things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them actually are overcoming. This is often something that people ignore. They actually are overcoming real problems, but we come back to that oversteer thing. They're going too far. So a good example of that, there was a feminist named Susan Brown Miller, who in the 1970s wrote a thing about rape, talking about how rape always has to do with power. And this became rooted in jurisprudence. And what was happening, what's happened as a result is that um, it became very difficult to convict a rapist if you couldn't establish a power-based motive. So if you say, why did, you know, we have the evidence sort of, we have this, we have that, well, why would the rapist have raped this woman? And then the answer to that is only he wanted to have sex with her. That's inadmissible according to the, the theory that it has to be rooted in male domination, patriarchal domination of society. So you think, well, that Brown Miller was just putting out this crazy theory, and this actually allowed some rapists to, to get off because they couldn't establish a motive for the rape, which is, of course, ludicrous. And then this is a damage. People can get all mad. Oh, patriarchal domination and it ignores reality and blah, blah, blah. And they can look at it from this side and say that. But at the time, in the 70s, when Brown Miller put this out, a larger number of rapists would get away with it. And the reason was because the second that a rape came up, it would be victim blaming. Well, what was she wearing? Mm -hmm. Did she ask for it? Did she lead him on? And it's not to say that this kind of thing never happens. But it is to say that when you can dismiss every rape case by blaming the woman for acting a certain way, you're going to have a big problem there. So her, let's take sex off the table and talk about it only in terms of domination and power forced us as a community because it became mainstream. It mm -hmm. gained traction. It forced us as a community to reckon with what's going on with rape that has nothing to do with just wanting to have sex with somebody. And it takes that element out. Now, did it go too far? Yes, clearly. It went too far. So what happens 2010, a guy, Craig Palmer, has been drawn into this, another scholar, wrote a book called The Natural History or A Natural History of Rape that puts the sex back into it. But now we have this greater understanding. So they were solving a problem. Susan Brown Miller solved the real problem. She was doing good. She went too far. This is how it always worked. And then somebody came back and corrected back later. Now, this was how academia should work. And if it did work that way, that would be wonderful. But what happened instead was the establishment came down on Craig Palmer and tried to ruin his life because he questioned what had been 25 years of orthodoxy on a really Damn. sensitive topic. That's the part where it broke. Okay, so people forward ideas all the time. People are slightly wrong all the time. Uh, we just talked about that with Peterson and my opinions about Peterson. As long as people can come in and criticize that and say, hey, maybe not. Hey, what about this? Hey, let's reconsider. Then you're on the path to wisdom. If you instead say, go away, you rapist, you hate women, you're part of the patriarchal domination or whatever it happens to be. Now you're way off the track. Now you're not playing the game correctly anymore. But yeah, these people literally, they are touching on real things. I would certainly argue that white fragility, for example, has real roots. There are real places that contact reality, but for the most part, rather than gluing to reality tightly, it's like it touches here and flaps in the wind up above it with all of its crazy critical theory stuff. And this is the this is how it works, where it touches reality. They point and say, no, look, you're touching reality and people believe it. Same thing with religion again. Of course, the Bible's full of good advice. It's also full of complete shit. So what are you going to do? 
you know, it touches reality here and there. Oh yeah. When people do, you know, you shouldn't be a, a borrower or a lender because it's going to cause social problems. It's wisdom or whatever it happens to be. Of course it touches reality. If it didn't, it would be just complete nonsense. It sticks because it touches reality, but then the stuff that's blowing in the wind, that's what's got to get questioned. That's how we, we cut away more and more of the chaff and keep the wheat to draw, I think, a biblical illusion. It is, in fact, yeah. So let's, if we have, if you have time, can we talk about the thought experiment with John Rawls? Did I say Thomas Rawls earlier? Um, you did. Yeah, I did. I didn't. You didn't correct me. I appreciate that. But I, I wasn't familiar with that thought experiment, but I really enjoyed thinking through it. And what it, could you help? Could you walk us through that, through that, and your article there a little bit? Sure. I mean, it's one of the most famous thought experiments in, in modern liberal political thought. Uh, John Rawls said that essentially that you can imagine designing the world any way you want. And we're going to put up a veil of ignorance between you and the world. Here's the deal. You can create the world however you want. You can create rich people. You can create poor people. You can create a world with racism, without racism, sexism, without sexism, arbitrary advantage or privilege. He didn't talk about privilege. That was Peggy McIntosh a decade later that came up with that term. But the idea was still there. You could set it up however you want with in terms of fairness and unfairness. But here's the trick. You don't know who you're going to get to be in this world. Mm -hmm. So if you set it up where 1% of the population is mega rich and 99% are dirt poor, you know, you just stacked your odds really badly against yourself. You might be one of those rich people. You might think it's great, but you might be really poor. You're going to have to spin a wheel or roll dice, and then you're going to be inserted into whatever world you create without your, without your choice of who you get to be in the world. You don't get picked to be on the good side of what you design. Mm -hmm. So the, the thing is a thought experiment. The point of the thing is just to think about would you set things up the way that they are now by reflection? And the answer for a lot of people, if you can look around and you can see that there's certain levels of unfairness that seem bad, or if you think that there are certain amounts of discrimination that are bad, that maybe you probably wouldn't include those. So therefore, you can't justify those in a kind of political moral philosophy. And so you can't really justify defending policy or whatever it happens to be that, that entrenches those. So that was a thought experiment. And a lot of people, of course, are pretty um, hasty to think that this implies that people should design worlds where nobody has you know, specialized talent. Nobody's more lucky or rich or whatever it happens to be than anybody else. But of course, if you think more deeply about human nature, you would not probably conclude that. But this all misses the point. The point is that there are ways that are better and worse to design the world. Rawls wanted to point out that worlds that include discrimination probably are not going to be your most just world. And therefore, there's a moral blockage between arguing on behalf of what perpetuates discrimination. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people, like I said, misunderstand. The answer to that is that why wouldn't we want people who are differentially talented? Of course, we want people who are better, say, at making, well, to use the classic example from from economics, because it's always got to be on a deserted island, you have to have somebody who's good at catching fish. And what's the other thing that's always that they put it up there? You have one person who's good at catching fish and one person who's good at gathering berries or something like that. And so, of course, you want to design a world where you have specialization of of talent. We want people who are going to be experts in mathematics. We want people who are going to be experts in building or designing bridges or architecture or sanitation or whatever the field is. We want experts everywhere. We want differentiation of talent. So I, I think I think that it's a 
naive reading of Rawls to think that he's concluding we should have this talentless, gray, super communist world. Right. I mean, it'd be fine even if those people make different amounts of money. You could design the scale of them. Like, yeah, it's easier being a fisherman. You get paid less, but it's quite stress-free, and you like it. It pays less, and that's that's a that's a fair world, you know. Yeah. So yeah, then there are lots of things about human sense of fairness that hard work should return a good result. Mm -hmm. Taking a bigger risk should return a bigger result. Sometimes it works out. These things all work into fairness. And I think if you had a really robust understanding of human psychology, you would work them into such a world. Well, the point I wanted to make in the article, though, was that people who want to say that we can't criticize other cultures because we have to do so from the perspective of our own culture, these people being called cultural or or moral relativists. In other words, people who believe that because if if a thing is cultural, then you can't criticize it without bringing in the perspective of your own culture, which you therefore can't justify because you have to justify it from within your own culture. Those people are also failing to understand the full implications of Rawls's thought experiment, which would be that if you could, the, the analogy or the second thought experiment I proposed in the article was that if you could design a world in which, say, you have, this was the original conversation that that led to it. If you could design a world that had modern medicine in some parts, in some cultures, and had witch doctors in other parts, and had, you know, I literally use the example of Ayurveda in other parts and all this. The original thought that I had was that if you could pick which culture you were going to land in, who would pick which doctor? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Anybody who could look and watch this world for a small amount of time and see the outcomes of, you know, increased lifespan, reduced infant mortality, all the benefits of modern medicine, nobody's picking witch doctors. Like nobody's Nobody. designing a world in which you could accidentally be born within the borders of a community where witch doctor was your option there. And that's their culture. That, yeah, That's the next step from there. If nobody would pick that, then if you were designing a world with different cultures that say had different medical practices, nobody would design that. If you were designing a world that has different cultural practices, nobody would design a world where People are being thrown off the rooftop before being gay and murdered for it. If you could really look back, look down and see what's going on, and of course, people come back with, oh, well, if you actually believe those things, you would design that world. But that, that's really missing the point. That's being lodged within that particular culture. I'm saying that if you could take a God's eye view of how the world's actually going and look at how different cultures play out, even ones maybe that don't exist, you certainly would not be picking Nobody would, given the, the this so-called God's eye view mm-hmm. of how the world works, nobody would be picking, picking a world that has the possibility of you ending up gay and being thrown off of a rooftop for it under strict fundamentalist religion. That wouldn't get work when you're writing out the plan. That wouldn't go on anybody's plan. Nobody's plan, right. If you had the God's eye view world, you only from within the cultural eye view world, oh, I, I already believe this, only from there would you possibly have that. But if you took the God's eye view, you would you would never pick to design that part of the world. You would never design a world that has medical systems that are grossly ineffective, while other even without the fairness part, you would just design a world that has the most effective medical systems possible. That has the most the a political and cultural system that's most in line with things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You would design societies where what we call the Gini indexes or indices all come out very high. You wouldn't, you, you, this is just what you would do. But the conclusion of that is we can judge cultures and moral systems. Mm -hmm. And the reason we know we can judge cultures and moral systems 
is because that's exactly what we're doing when we say that nobody would design such a world. That's right. And it doesn't mean judge in some way where you want to harm the people there. It's quite the opposite. It makes you sound like a real asshole to say that, well, who are we to judge cultures? All all cultures are good. These cultures are fine, too. That's easy for you to say with your privilege and get to live over here and then say that about over there. That's exactly the idea. I think that that's a – I don't actually know for sure how – if that idea has never been thought of, Rawls came up with this stuff in the 70s, and a lot of people have thought about it. But I did think that there was a certain irony that progressive people tend to be, for various reasons, mostly intersectional thought, uh, this master-slave thing that we've already spoken of, they tend to privilege with what's been called the soft bigotry of, of low expectations. Mm-hmm. They tend to, to privilege some other moral cultures or other other systems and say that Western science or Western culture can't criticize those actions because that's imperialist. That's trying to force a moral view on those. We can't say that they're wrong. And if we try, then we're doing more damage to them. We're trying to change their way of life. And this is a very, this is ultimately rooted in cultural relativism or moral relativism, even if it's actually more like moral privileging. And this is absolutely a hypocrisy if they're going to accept that Rawls supports their view that society should be utterly without discrimination and then reject the view that Rawls' thought experiment also implies that nobody would design a world filled with cultures that nobody wants to live in if they had the choice. Right. From an outsider's like pre, like a foreknowledge per, uh, perspective, not from a, I've already lived this way and I'm comfortable with it perspective. So there we go. That and that's looking at basically the privilege of the progressive, right? Right. Yeah. It, it's sort of a, a little again, like I said earlier with the phrase, a little knife in the ribs. Mm-hmm. That it does take quite a bit of privilege to be a moral relativist. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I called the article "Check Your Progressive Privilege." Mm-hmm. And so I won't take up really much more of your time. If we had more time, I would love to uh, discuss your book, which I haven't read yet, but now I think I will do it now that I've talked to you and become familiar with you. But it's called Everybody's Wrong About God. Um, yeah. And we won't even get into to that. But if you've enjoyed you know, what James is saying here, I think you probably would like this book. I think I will uh, get through it, and I could have you back to talk about that. But to wrap all this up, do you think – that given what you've seen over the last, I don't know, not just just over the last year or, or months, do you think we're in a good spot for people to hear more ideas? Do you think we're correct and stuff, or do you think we're spinning out here with this kind of thing? Because it feels to me like there's got to be people meeting in the middle. That's not a really good description of it, but people that you know are becoming on the same page that you wouldn't think we're on the same page, just united under the idea of you got to be able to sort through these ideas and criticize stuff and, and, and do it freely without fear. Are we in the right direction then or the wrong? You know, I really am nervous about the present time. I can't, I'm fairly optimistic, but I can't be a naive optimist. Uh, we have a large amount of polarization. I don't see the remedy to this polarization, although there probably is one, but I will also admit that what you're saying resonates with me. I've phrased it on Twitter many times. I keep saying that I'm sticking my finger in my mouth and putting it up and I can feel there's a change in the wind. Mm -hmm. I think people are getting sick of this intolerant bullshit from pretty much all of the political extremes. I really think people are starting to try to meet in the middle. They're rejecting the extremism Mm -hmm. of far left, the extremism of the far right, the Lack of willingness to budge, to listen to maybe that the other side did have some good ideas at all. It feels like there's a change 
in the wind. I feel like things might be curving to the to the better direction now. Although there's a lot of variables, social media, for instance, moves very quickly. I don't know exactly how to read what's going on. I am wary, but I do feel like the the, the tide is starting to shift. And I will end on a positive note then and say that my my real gut reaction is that we're at the point of inflection where we're going to see the thing start to curve the other way. That would certainly would be nice. I've been thinking you're like this from a science point of view, but I've been thinking of it like the universe expanding, you know, like if the extremes keep going, if they get extreme enough and keep on going, they'll get farther and farther apart and more and more dissipated at rapid speed. You know, just let the extreme people keep on being, get, you know, egg them on, let them get more extreme. And then they'll be completely dissipated across the universe, traveling away at light speed, hopefully. And they'll be, the extremes will be very far away and very extreme. And then, then they maybe won't hassle us anymore. There's a model I'm right. hoping happens. So just let them be yeah. extreme. The trick is that they can't take too much cultural mass with them or yeah. else it's going to rip the thing apart. Yeah, that's right. So um, we definitely want to encourage people to meet in the middle, listen across aisles, not care necessarily what somebody's background is. Are you religious? Are you a-religious? Are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you libertarian? Are you progressive? You know, who cares? Are you willing to talk? Are you willing to compromise? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to hear? Are you willing to admit that you can be wrong? If people want to play the game, let them keep arguing. If they don't want to play that game, we've just got to start kind of uh, ignoring them or when absolutely necessary, hold them up as examples of what not to do. And I think people want peace. I think people want less division. I think people want to have all this, frankly, all this shit calm down. So like I said, I feel like that urge is causing the wind to change and we're likely to see kind of a cultural coming together, which is going to cause, like you said, the kind of dissipation of the extremes on the far ends. Mm-hmm. I hope, anyway. Yep, I hope so too. But James, thank you for your time today. I want everybody to go to aeromagazine.com or you can follow you on, I don't know what your Twitter handle is actually, but the articles we're talking about are on aeromagazine.com and they're very good. That's a great place to to get good ideas and read them that are difficult and nuanced and and well thought out and i really thank you for doing this kind of work because it really helps me well i'm glad to do it my twitter handle is at god doesn't right g-o-d-o-e-s-n-t i hope i spelled that right but it's the way the words are usually spelled (laughs) it's the right way with no apostrophe obviously in the doesn't no apostrophe no underscores no spaces or any of that cool at god doesn't Well, very nice to meet you, and I enjoyed our time together today. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! 
Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to StoicismPod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.